Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Acts 7, 8, and 9. And the message is titled, Resolutions or Redemption? Resolutions or Redemption? So I I go to the gym on a regular basis. You know, after 50, I'm really trying to attenuate the aging process, and this is supposedly how you get to do it. Without fail, I go in, as I will next week, it's January. You know, you're laughing. You know what's coming. I'm not much of a morning person, so I kind of lumber out of bed, get in my car, drive to the gym, lumber out of the car, and it's, it's game time. So I walk in, and without fail in January, I'm stunned because now I have to wait for a bench. I have to wait for machines. And for a moment, I don't realize why until I re- remember, oh, it's January. <laughs> By March, these people will be gone. Oh, some of you are the January and February people. Okay. But every year, Americans make New Year's resolutions. And there's something innate in us as sinful human flesh. And it's funny, even people who aren't believers look in the mirror and and want to change things about themselves. So you got the resolutions. I mean, people, the most common ones are, I want to quit smoking. uh, I want to lose weight. And then there's some spiritual ones, like I want to be more generous right? I want to come to church more. I like that one. That's a good one. So this is what happens. So let me give you some statistics. And I I looked at a few periodicals. One was Psychology Today, um, different articles. And the Psychology Today categorizes it, all these resolutions in four basic categories. One is self-care, right? Two is to give more. Three is to accomplish more. Four is to enjoy more. In another article, and I did a lot of research on this, get in shape was up there at the top, eat healthier, quit smoking, and drink less alcohol. Now, here's for the good news. Here's an article that says five common mistakes that cause new habits to fail. And are you ready for the good news? I quote, depending on where you get your numbers, somewhere between 81% and 92% of New Year's resolutions fail. Thank you, Pastor Joe, for that encouraging message this morning. (laughs) Translation, at least eight times out of ten, you are more likely to fall back into your old habits and patterns than you are to stick with new behavior. Now, there's a, a, a fundamental difference in resolutions and redemption. And we're going to talk about redemption. I'm going to go into the dictionary. But resolutions are something that we try to will within our power as human beings sinful human flesh. So it's not surprising to me that a lot of these resolutions fail. Now, little caveat is I'm not against New Year's resolutions. If you're a Christian and you do it every year, I'm not going to say you're a bad person. So just understand the difference here. The fundamental difference with redemption and what God does is that it's a God thing. So instead of relying on ourselves to change, we actually employ the help of the creator of the universe. And for me personally, even as Christians, we still can look in the mirror and say, 
I, I, I don't like what I see in some ways. And, and when things in my life disturb me about myself, I don't try to will myself to get better. I go to the Lord. Because I know ultimately he's the one who can do the work. Now, it's very interesting in Romans chapter 7, which we covered, that the Apostle Paul even said, when you read Romans 7, when I will to do good, I often fail. When I will not to do bad, I often slip. And I'm paraphrasing that. So here is the writer of half of the New Testament telling us that by an act of my will and willpower, I fail. I don't know if Paul did research on New Year's resolutions, but this is what he tells us in the scripture. Ironically enough, the Apostle Paul is the person that I want to focus on this morning as we go through this. So let's start with a definition. Definition of redemption, number one. And you can see, this is amazing because, you know, there's Christian dictionaries. I like to go into secular sources. Our culture is trying to sanitize Christianity little by little. But when you read the dictionary, whether it's Merriam-Webster or whatever, there's still stuff in there that attests to our Judeo-Christian values. So the definition of redemption, number one, the action of saving or being saved from sin, error, or evil. Imagine that in a secular source. What is that? Well, that's Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish judgment, hell, eternal separation from God, but have eternal life. That's an awesome thing, too. The action of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for payment or clearing a debt. Amazing. My sin, your sin, it's a debt we can't pay. When we die and stand before God on our own, we're separated from him. We broke that fellowship through our sin that a lot of times, well, actually, if you think about it, we inherited from our federal head parents many, many years ago. So Jesus Christ, he gives his life in exchange for the debt that we couldn't pay. He pays it. Three, the action of buying one's freedom. The Lord Jesus died for our sins. He bought our freedom from the enslavement of sin that will damn us, right? He purchased that. He bought it. And he frees us. Now we're free to be who God wants us to be now and also into eternity. There's a promise. When we look at redeeming, a different form of the word. Number one, to compensate for the faults or bad aspects of another, a thing. This is the best part of it. When we look at redeeming, we see what God does in our lives after we get saved while we're still on the earth. He makes up for our bad faults. He changes our character. We don't change right away, but it's a slow process that when you look back, if you're walking with the Lord, you see positive changes and others see, others see that change in you as well. Two, for redeeming, is to restore the honor of someone. I love that. To restore the honor. Now, I talk about my past at times. I, I didn't kill anybody. I didn't do, you know, indictable crimes or anything, but... I was a, a grave sinner. I lived my life for myself. And probably 30 years ago, some of you would have said, so what's Joe DiProsimo like? You might have got some good answers, but you probably get a lot of bad answers. What the Lord did was he changed me. So when people know me today, I'm not perfect, 
But I want to serve God. I have a passion for the things of, the, of God. I have a passion for the lost and to see them get saved. So what God did was he restored my honor, which I lost due to sin. Incredible. That's why if we're really doing it right some 10, 20, 30 years down the road, you'll see a difference in what you used to be and what you are. And I can't say, I did that. I'm a self-made man. I'd feel a little guilty saying that when God sees everything because he's the one who changed me. So anything good that I am, it's because of him. What's awesome is the act of trusting in Christ as our Lord and Savior. With redemption from our sin comes a new nature and a new path that changes our character. So not only do we have a great spiritual position in heaven, but we have a new physical or temporal position while we're still, while we're still on the earth. And, and sometimes Christians look at this and they, they look at it erroneously. You know, oh, I, I got saved and I'm just waiting to die now. I'm waiting for heaven. No, the Lord can do great things with us while we're still here. We don't know when we're going to pass. In John 10.10, Jesus said, I have come to give them life and life more abundantly. Well, heaven's a no-brainer. We understand that. But we can also have abundant life while we're here. So let's look at the Apostle Paul. There's quite a bit of scripture here, but I'm going to go through them pretty much in blocks just to have you absorb these things, absorb what the scripture says. So in Acts 7.51, now remember, the Apostle Paul, before he was Paul, his name was Saul, and God changed his name as he changed his character. We'll talk about that too. So in Acts 7.51, now for those of you that maybe you're denominational Christians, you believe in Jesus, but you never really read the Bible that much, this is going to be a shock because Paul wasn't a nice guy before God changed his heart. And we're going to see what an awful person he actually was. 751. This is Stephen after Jesus. They call Stephen the first Christian martyr. And he's witnessing to his people. And he's telling them about Jesus as the Messiah. And a lot of these religious people are not having it because it's going to destroy their way of life. Their entrenched religion that really was against God at the time. He says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now become the betrayers and murderers. You have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. They were angry. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He knew that his time was short, and the Lord knew that his time was short. He said, look, I see the heavens open and a son of man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears. They didn't want to hear what he had to say. Do do words hurt? Maybe words bother us sometimes if they're exposing the truth that we don't want to hear. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. That means they hurled rocks at him, headshots usually, until they just crushed him and he died. That was a very horrible way to kill somebody. So they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, who formerly Saul before he was the Apostle Paul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. 
And I, I read, you know, Fox's Book of Martyrs and true stories today of Christians who lose their life and are witnessing to their persecutors as they're murdering, as they're being murdered um, or praying or it's an incredible thing. Acts 8, continuing on, it says, Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So Saul was a Pharisee. He could have been a part of the Sanhedrin, which was the religious clique, um, which had power at the time. So him consenting, maybe they roughed up Stephen, maybe they threw him in a pit, and they looked at Saul saying, should we? Now remember, Saul's a religious man. He knows the Old Testament. Gave him the consent to kill him. Also, that went against Roman law. The Romans didn't take kindly to people murdering people without going through the court system. So it's an interesting thing that we look at here. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. So I'm going to say something that some, if you don't know the scripture really well, might say, you're on the line, Pastor Joe. We, we love the Apostle Paul. Before he got saved, he was a religious zealot. Now, 2C law, right? New Jersey law, uh, there's different penal codes. Uh, he could be classified today as a terrorist. He was religious. He was a zealot. He believed in what he was doing to the point of killing people that didn't believe what the established religion was supposed to believe. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? And I say these things because Paul says this about himself. We're going to cover that. I say these things because I want you to see the marked change that God did in his life. I got to be honest with you, up until today, I've never actually roped all these scriptures together, and I was kind of blown away by what I was reading. That happens sometimes as a pastor. It's pretty neat. Let me just say this, too, that there are Christians, I read about the, uh, the ISIS creeps who uh, killed seven, uh, 11 Christians in Nigeria. And, you know, there's this thing out there, the prosperity gospel. There's some good TV preachers, but... A lot of them preach this. Well, they're doing very well. They don't do funerals. They don't do weddings. They don't do marital counseling. They just kind of have their TV ministry. They collect money, and they do very well for themselves. So they preach to you that God wants you to be wealthy, and he wants you to be rich, and he wants you to be healthy all the time. But tell that to those Nigerian Christians who just got murdered. Tell that to the persecuted church in parts of Africa and Asia and Indonesia, India, that prosperity gospel doesn't fly because Hebrews 11 tells us that the heroes of faith, some of those heroes actually went to their death as martyrs. And that's sometimes a hard thing for us as more, mere mortals to understand how some are victorious in some ways that we see victorious and some become martyrs. So I just wanted to kind of put that out there because it's almost like these, some of these preachers are marrying the American dream with with Christianity and it doesn't work. Christianity stands on its own. Okay. <laughs> I was just, no, I was just watching an interview with Ke Kevin Copeland, who actually has a hangar full of jets. He's worth billions of dollars. He's supposedly a preacher. He can't be bothered to, f to fly commercial with other people. He has to have his own jets, but 
that's another story for another discussion. Uh, Acts 9. <laughs> Pastor Joe, tell us how you really feel. I wear my heart on my sleeve. Uh, chapter 9 in Acts, starting with verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, which was the understanding of the Christians, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem to try them. In Galatians 1.13, after Saul becomes, you know, later Paul and then the apostle Paul, you know, God grows him over the years. Galatians 1.13, he says he tried to destroy Christianity. Let me read to you 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 13. Paul's own words later on, right? He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Verse 13, although I was formerly a blasphemer. Now, when he was a religious man with power, he didn't think he was a blasphemer. He knew the entire Old Testament. He was a zealot. But now that his life has changed and God changes his character and his spirit, he looks back and goes, I was a horrible person. I wasn't religious at all. I was a, a zealot. So he says, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Interesting. Picture the scene. Let's go back to New Year's resolutions. Could you imagine Paul or Saul one day just, you know, I, the Roman calendar was different. Um, the ancient calendar was different. But could you picture Paul, Saul praying to God or writing out New Year's resolutions? I want to be a nicer religious person. You know, I want you to make me kinder and sweeter. Yeah, I don't see that happening. <laughs> it had to be a conversion. It had to be God changing his heart, him receiving Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And it happened slowly. I, I find it humorous. I do find some humor in the scripture and that other Christians were terrified of him. And we're going to read that. So look at he has this conversion experience in uh, chapter nine. Starting with verse 10, Acts chapter 9, verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming to him and putting his hand on him, so that he might receive his sight. Isn't it amazing how God puts people together? I believe very strongly that as a new believer, God put people in my life to mentor me and disciple me. I don't know where I'd be today if that didn't happen. He puts us together because I wanted it. And I just, I wasn't going to like, you know, close my eyes and pick a name out of a hat. The Lord actually brought that person to me. So uh, Saul, who the Lord really has to get his attention further back in this chapter, he stops Saul from going after these Christians, and he, he's blinded by, by the light, right? And uh, now he can't see temporarily. So Ananias is going to come and lay his hands on him, and he's going to receive his sight. Pretty interesting stuff there. Then Ananias answered, now this didn't happen yet, right? It's going to happen. He responds in prayer, Lord, I have heard, about, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm... He has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. I love that. I would have never got into ministry had I not seen 
the flaws in believers and the, the, the heavy hitters, the A-team, so to speak. So here Ananias in prayer is arguing with the Lord. He's saying, you know, Lord, I don't know if you noticed. Isn't that funny when we do that? You know, we're in prayer or things are happening. We're like, no, 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 Lord, this, this isn't, no, no, this isn't the way it, my life is supposed to go. You don't understand it. Something's going wrong here. And you, you, I don't know if you saw that. So Ananias is, it's kind of humorous to me. He's having this, this discussion, Lord, he's really a bad person. You know, what's really sad. Sometimes Christians today can have that attitude. Oh no, not, not that person, not those people. Oh, oh no, they're coming into the church. Who cares who it is? Let them come into the church. Let them hear about God. Who are we to say who God is going to accept and who God is going to reject? There's nobody outside the possibility of salvation. There's just a lot packed into those two verses, aren't there? It's good stuff. So he continues. But the Lord said to him, go. (laughs) For he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. It's not going to be an easy road. God doesn't play favorites. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hand on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes, Saul's eyes, something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and he was baptized. And when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Verse 20, immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, check this out, other believers, is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest? So even the believers, they're not it's a learning curve for them. And that's the way we are as human beings. God shares things with us. And I'll be got to be honest with you. Maybe it's a, a plan completely diametrically opposed the way I thought it should be. And it's a learning curve. That's why he's God and we're not, you know, and they look at Saul and they say, he did a lot of bad things. I don't know if I can trust this guy. You know, pastor Richard, Richard Wombrand. I don't know how many of you have heard of him, He's a Romanian. He's gone to be with the Lord. He's a Romanian pastor. And sadly enough, in Romania, they, they lived under Nazi rule for a while, which was horrible. And then the Soviets came in and drove the Nazis out. Then they lived under Soviet rule, which was also horrible. And under the Soviets, they wanted to... I, I just have to laugh at people today who want to see us become a communist country or even socialism leading the communism. Ask people from Eastern Europe what that's like. It's not pleasant. One of the first things they do is try to destroy the faith of Christians. Or they can say, well, you can have your churches. Don't preach Jesus as God. They tell you what to preach, just like the Nazis did. They're just as bad. And uh, Pastor Wombrand and a, a handful of pastors in Romania refused to do what they were told. They were like, no, we've got to preach the truth. They were taken away. Wombrand was in prison for 14 years, solitary confinement, they beat his feet so he couldn't stand. They whipped his back. I actually saw a video. This stuff isn't made up. I saw a video when Congress did good things um, of one brand in front of the body of Congress. And he got up and he took his shirt off and he turned around. I saw the video and you see all the whips 
the scars on his back, how they whipped him and tried to whip Jesus out of him. And they weren't successful. And the, the man is a hero to me. He actually started Voice of the Martyrs, which chronicles the persecuted church around the world. Uh, but you could see in his eyes, you know, he, it, it played a heavy toll on him. But he knew that God was real. The point I'm trying to make is that like Saul, one brand would witness to his guards. Before the guy started beating the heck out of him, he would witness to him as the guards were beating him and whipping him. Some of those guards broke down and cried and they didn't want to be torturers anymore and they became Christians and they left. They fled their posts. Like they, their hearts changed. God can do that to anybody. And I got to tell you something, and probably in this room, probably maybe somebody watching on the live stream, some people have this attitude that I'm outside of the possibility of getting saved. Pastor, you don't know what I did. You don't know the things that I've done. I don't need to know. It's not confession time. But the Lord can do a great work in you. So please, don't anyone have that attitude that you can't be saved. Not true. God wants to save the whole world, the Bible says, but he's also given us free will. Continuing on, Acts 9.26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. <laughs> And did not believe that he was a disciple. I, I, I can't help but find the humor in the scripture. They're all probably like, you sit next to him. I'm not sitting next to him. He's probably got that billy club in his pocket. You know what I'm saying? They were, and God's word is, you know what I love about God's word? It's just honest. This isn't some fairy tale where it says, oh yeah, and, and the Lord said this, and everybody rejoiced, and everybody became great Christians. Like a fairy tale. Amen. That's not the way it worked back then, and it's not the way it works today. See, God can change our soul. He can, he can give us eternal life, but we still carry the old nature of the flesh. You know, and even Christians struggle in prayer. I hear this every week from Christians. They pray, they pray, they struggle, they cry. But in the end, folks, when we're with him, all those questions will be answered. We'll completely understand his plan and why things happened and etc. But what does God do? God changes his name from Saul, the great religious Pharisee, to Paul. And the word Paul meant little. Maybe it was for God for him to see that God was big and he was little before he was big and he was going to do, he was going to make the kingdom of heaven happen by his own power. And God showed him I'm God, you're not. And he changed his character. Now, there are some churches, and they do this as a, um, a tradition. And again, I'm not knocking it, like I'm not knocking resolutions, where you go to this church and they give you a new name. It's a name that they come up with. I think it's better when God gives us a new name. As a matter of fact, I re read in Revelation, Revelation 2.17, that we don't all know it yet, but when we get to be with the Lord and everything is perfected, he's going to give us this new name, this new eternal name that means something. I'm not going to be Joe DeProsmo anymore. And I'm happy because whenever I call for service, they say, can you spell that? <laughs> FF? No, SS. David, Echo, Papa, Romeo, Ocean, Sierra, Sierra. You know, I got to use the kind of police codes to get them to understand my name. And then my address is long too. It's like, Lord... <laughs> Two things I'm not going to have to deal with. Where do you live? Heaven. 
What's your name? Ask God. So let's talk about the life change. Let's talk about the good news this morning. We know he was religious. He was miserable. He probably had no love in his heart. He was punching a card. He had passion with no knowledge, no love. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 13, which I love to read at weddings. I don't think there's a wedding I've ever done where I haven't read 1 Corinthians 13. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes about love. There's no way he could have gotten this out, not 1% of it, in his old life. When God changed his nature, he understood God. He understood love. He realized that he didn't have love. He had zealotry, but he had no love. So let's look at this. Now, we, we, we <laughs> I don't think that was from the Lord, but <laughs> let's look at this and see the difference from what this insolent blasphemer used to do and where his heart is now. He says, verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I have becoming a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. People do that today in, in the Christian world. Well, I have this gift. Well, I, have a, I can heal people. Well, I can speak in tongues. When you start doing that, you've lost the idea of the gifts of the Spirit. You know, well, I'm a pastor. Well, I'm a bishop. He said, if I don't have love, I can hold these positions. I'm a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, another good thing, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains. Remember Jesus talked about that? But I have not love. I am nothing. Nothing. Great. You could do all these things. Great. You have those gifts. Does the man of God or the woman of God exhibit love? Three, and though I bestow all my goods, generosity, to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. Four, what is love? Love suffers long. It's patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It doesn't behave rudely. It doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. It thinks no evil. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity or sin, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. When we're in the presence of the Lord, we don't need prophecy anymore. We're right in his presence. It's not necessary on that side of eternity. But they'll fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. It's also not necessary. That form of communication will be in his presence. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. As much as Saul thought he, and he was, he was probably wealthy, he was a Pharisee, he had power, he had status, he had clout, he had everything that people want in this world. But he was a child. When he understood who Jesus was, he became a man in spiritual maturity. And all those things that I said before, he ended up losing. But he thought it was more valuable to have that relationship with Christ than those things that he had in the world. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we see dimly. Even our understanding of spiritual things 
is, is going to be so much greater when we're in the Lord's presence. We'll see him, we'll see him face to face. We'll see things face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. And now abide. Christians, faith, very important. Hope, very important. Love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. There's something to meditate on. Written by this former zealot and persecutor. So let's just go back to this. Resolutions. For me personally, I don't make them. If I have a problem with myself or I want to get better, I take it to the Lord. I try, don't get me wrong, but I got backup. I got air support. I can't do it on my own. Redemption, redeeming what he does with us. And God does use broken people. I look at Stan Telchin, who wrote books. It's kind of funny, his story, Jewish man. His daughter goes to college, comes back home and says, Dad, I'm a Christian. He goes, no, you're not. (laughs) He goes, for once and for all, I'm going to prove this Jesus doesn't exist. He goes on this quest. He takes all this material. He does all this research, becomes a Christian himself, writes a book about it called Betrayed. Lee Strobel, Harvard, I believe, Ivy League school, journalist, um, both atheists, him and his wife, decide to raise their children without religion. She becomes a Christian. He goes, oh, no. <laughs> we, we, we talked about this. You know what I'm saying? He goes on this quest to disprove a long quest, exhaustive quest, secular information, historical information, not just Christian stuff. As a matter of fact, he went around the Christian stuff because he wanted to disprove Jesus. He becomes a Christian himself, writes a book. Incredible. Sometimes the best thing you can do for those loved ones, because we, we, we can be a little, not like Saul, but we can be zealous in the sense that we want to see everybody we know get saved, every stranger we come in contact with. It's just such a wonderful thing to know that you're going to heaven, that you want everybody else to experience that too. And maybe they misunderstand. Maybe they're, they have blinders, their eyes like, you know, like Saul did. But Sometimes, here's the funniest thing, is the best thing you can do for that person that you love, that you've been witnessing for a long time, is challenge them. (laughs) Like, these two guys, hey, I have a great idea. Why don't you prove to me that Christianity is wrong? Just look at all these different sources and come back to me in a few months and let me know what you think. You might be surprised. Is there a doubt that, that Jesus actually existed? Absolutely not. You look at our year, our calendar system, our year, you look at... um extra biblical works you look at unbelievers who spoke of jesus the only thing left then is if he did exist do you do you make the leap to he was the son of god he did die for our sins because don't do me a favor and and i'm not going to be not going to be rude to you but don't tell me that jesus was a good man don't tell me he was a prophet he made some claims that if one of you did that i'd say you need to see somebody you need help You know what I'm saying? Jesus made claims that were divine. So he either was, he either should have been committed and there was something very wrong with him, or he really was those things. You can't kind of split the difference and say he was a nice guy. Nice guys don't make the claims that he makes if they're not true. Then he's a deceiver and he's evil. 
You know, if we're, it's amazing. We'll do research for papers for college. We'll do research over a new exercise routine. We'll do research for anything. We all go on Web, WebMD and see what kind of disease we think we might have. But when it comes to dying and going to heaven or being judged, people just, no, oh, let's worry about it when I get there. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? It's all good. My personal testimony, I've said it many times, I was empty, substance abuse, reckless, reckless behavior. I didn't care if I lived or I died. After becoming a believer, I would never go back. Why would I go back to that life? Oh my goodness. Folks, what you're looking for in life will always turn up empty if the Lord is not part of that. Yeah, the new car smell lasts for a while. Yeah, the bigger house is nice for a while. Yeah, the, the third or fourth kid that you have is wonderful. But life is filled with pitfalls, right? We have sickness. We, have, we experience death of a loved one. We, have, we experience disability or some issue with a child, loss of a job, divorce, victim of a crime, abandonment and disloyalty. Those are the big ones. You live in this area, believe me, somebody will abandon you or they'll be disloyal to you or you think you're, you're your best friend and you find out they're conspiring against you. They're frenemies. I like that term that, that it was um, coined, portmanteau, I believe it's called. To do it alone, you could every year will yourself into these resolutions. And maybe some of them, maybe you have a very strong will and some of them will come to pass. But I got to tell you, why do things the hard way when you can do things the easier way with the Lord at your side. Redemption is a God thing. And wouldn't it be amazing if you've been doing resolutions for a long time and you don't know the Lord and today's the day, right before January, that your resolution actually became redemption, that you could look back and say, you know what? Just before January 2020, I gave my life to the Lord. Folks, I am very passionate about this, as are the other people who come up to this pulpit. As I'm going to tell you, I'm 52, and I did a little math. Every 10 years, every decade that I live, there's only 3,650 days. That's not a lot. If I live another 30 years, I mean, I got a little over 10,000 days. That's not a lot. Every day goes by so quickly. And then... You pass, and then you stand. And that's, that's providing I don't get hit by a bus or struck by lightning or something where tomorrow's my day. We just don't know. Life is a breath. It's a vapor, the Bible says. Promise of eternal life, heaven. So I'll just leave you with this. Do it on your own again this year, or do it with the Lord. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfield's by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.